Megan Powell joins us to talk about getting into the recovery industry through service. She talks about growing up with a family member with mental illness that she couldn't relate to, being diagnosed with bipolar 1, and gaining sympathy through her own personal experiences. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. On the podcast today, we have the privilege, and I'm super excited to be talking with Megan Powell. Um, Megan is in long-term recovery herself. She has discovered her passion is to help others suffering from substance abuse. Um, For the past five years, she has volunteered to help spread the word of recovery by participating in community presentations at treatment facilities, universities, prisons, and community-based correctional facilities. <clears throat> Megan, thank you so much for being on our on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Um, I know we were just getting to know each other a little bit before we started recording, and, um, and it might be really great for our listeners to get a little bit of an idea of your background, where you come from, and some of the experiences that you've had that have brought you into the substance abuse world, because what I think is true, I, I don't have, I have not had anybody question me on this, is that when we're little and we're thinking about what we want to do when we grow up, substance abuse treatment and recovery was not ever one of the things we thought about. Yeah, absolutely. I think the age of four, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Like I was the kid in the dirt, you know, (laughs) looking for moles. Um, I really thought that's what I was going to do. And I think, you know how, uh, parents give that book you fill out every year oh yeah updated each grade level I think I went from vet to teacher to president and (laughs) (laughs) if I only knew right uh so growing up you know my mom was a social worker my sister ended up being a social worker and my dad worked in student services and higher education so Basically, most of my family were working in some type of service role. And, um, you know, I I went to school really not knowing what that was going to look like. Um, I had seen mental health and addiction within my own family, um, grandparents, and also uh, more closely, my brother. And, um, at that point 
I was at an age, you know, in high school and college where I didn't quite understand what addiction was. I kind of looked at him like, hey, buddy, can you, can you cut it out? You're, you're, you're ruining your life. You're ruining everyone else's life. Um, so it wasn't until my own experience um, in addiction, and also I was diagnosed with bipolar 1 when I was 25, uh, how much of an impact not only does it have on an individual, but on just everybody around them. Um, so I have this perspective from experiencing it myself and also experiencing from a very close um, vantage point with my brother. And so, you know, after college, I had different roles, different positions um, within marketing and sales. And um, I was always volunteering, um, especially once I got into recovery. Um, I started working at a small university um, here in Columbus in the uh, military services and adult um, admissions. And in that role, um, I worked with a lot of um, vets and adult students and getting them to where they needed to be with education. And there was one thing missing, like the, the, the people that were veterans and military servicemen and service women really needed some type of level of connection that I couldn't offer. And it was the first time I saw the value of peer-to-peer, the therapeutic value of you understand, you've been through something similar. And a major general came to work on campus and I could see those interactions and what transpired. So it was kind of the first moment where I was like, wow, like this does remind me of that, um, you know, one addict kind of helping another addict is a therapeutic value. Um, which attracted me to maybe I should really look in a different field um, outside of higher education. And I was at a recovery conference. Um, it was uh, for those that were in recovery. And I was like in the cabin or whatever. And, you know, one of my friends was talking to me and she said, did you ever think about, you know, working um, in, in the treatment world and helping people find um, solutions to what they're going through and treatment programs and working with those individuals and families. And ever since then, you know, I went, I had those conversations with um, Recovery Village, where I'm at now, and I've been there for um, almost three years. And I was exactly where I needed to be. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit, hmm. a little bit about my background. That's fascinating, and when it's when when some of those experiences, and I'd love to ask you a little bit more, and and without prying, because it's my nature to just ask questions, but I, I recognize that there's a lot of people listening, and so so don't answer a question if I ask one that you don't want to answer. But talk about that relationship with your brother, and 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 then your own recovery process as well. You know, you're looking at him and going, buddy, you're you're ruining your life, you're messing up our lives, and yet you know, you had some, you know, some mental illness that, that you've, I assume are dealing with. I, I, am going to say that that's a continued process, right? We, we kind of have to figure out what that looks like. Talk about that journey and the struggles that you had, um, and, and your relationship with your brother. Kind of talk about that a little bit more. So me and my brother were always close growing up. He's, He's three years older than me. Whatever he wore, I wore. Um, whatever he bought at the store, I wanted to buy at the store. Um, he was a, he was a extremely smart ever since I've known him. 
and both of us kind of shared that kind of anxiety overthinking type of mentality like who am I what am I in the world almost just like a little too intense for for at a young age we kind of shared that um and one way we were able to kind of cope with whatever that was was sports and activities and all the things we want to do everything major and we just adrenaline and all the things and it kind of foreshadowed our behavior later on in life and I remember being in high school picking up my brother with my mom from a party and his behavior being completely different he was normally like really chill just really sweet and then he would drink or use substances that just this other side came out and you know they tried to ship him off to my dad in Oregon, try to like, you know, get his life together and change the scenery. Um, and then, you know, the later years, he kind of got it together a little bit. Um, I got a phone call from my mom. I was a junior in college. Mom says, your brother's dropping out of law school. He was in the top five percentile of the LSAT scores. Got a full ride to law school. Um, he had a meeting with the dean and he he was pretty bad and you know they got his car back from florida because he went to school down in florida and uh you know it was covered and you know just just needles spoons just stuff that i mean it, it just it was awful and i remember thinking what are you doing and and i just wanted to shake him and i remember um when we would not be able to find him we'd, we'd drive around the city you know looking for him in ditches and at the pharmacies or wherever and I'm like this isn't you know this, this isn't normal um not like any family is normal but at the time I just felt like this is this is just crazy and a couple years later um I was introduced to you know the drug that I like to use um which is an opiate um in college from my from my roommate um he was a uh, he was like a track star for college and used them to kind of feel better. And he's actually recently died of an overdose. Um, and I tried it and I said, wow, you know, this really relieves all of that pressure from having anxiety, you know, questions with my self-worth. I had also questioned, you know, my sexuality for years. I didn't come out until later. So I think there was a lot of underlying things where I, I took this uh, drug and it was just like that moment of, oh, wow. That, that feels good, and I'd, I'd like to feel that way again. Um, and it, it just it just steamrolled my life. And my the way my addiction played out within myself and my family was very different from my brother's. My brother was, you know, everyone kind of knew, and it was this, everyone was trying to save him and all the things. And I remember, for me, I internalized everything because I said, well, starting to have a little bit of a problem but as long as I keep it under wraps no one finds out I'm not gonna harm anybody else I'll, I might be okay and you know after a while it just got to the point where you know I kept my job because I thought that's what I wanted um, to keep to kind of make me feel like I was still a productive member of society <laughs> but you know no house no money um, I think at one point um, you know, I was just living with a friend off a couch. I don't even know if the toilet worked at that point. Not that that mattered to me. I just really needed to get what I needed each day. Um, and then uh, my brother had moved in with me shortly after that. 
time where I was kind of at my worst. So it was like a recipe for disaster at that point because then you got two people who are using, who are, it was just, it was a hot mess. And then that's when um, he was exhibiting symptoms of his schizophrenia, um, the paranoia, and um, it, it got pretty dark pretty fast. I remember him asking me if I bugged his car. And I'm like, listen, brother, you're not really that interesting. I'm, I'm not going to bug your car. And I tried to laugh it off to be like, okay, this is getting real weird. And then, um, you know, I remember a time, you know, he, he had told me this later. He had told me this, um, you know, before he passed that he, he did have voices tell him, you know, to walk into a college and, and harm people. And so it just, it's just, it's scary. Um, and, you know, fortunately, um, my experience with um, my psychosis um, shortly before I was diagnosed bipolar one was my saving grace of why I'm clean today. And that, and that's a, a story on its own is, is what transpired during that time. Uh, <clears throat> that's, uh, I mean, that's just, there's so much complexity there, right? Of, of loving your brother and seeing how his, his behaviors are impacting you and the family and himself, and then getting into addiction yourself. It's interesting, those cycles and patterns that happen, you know, and often driven by mental illness in, in many cases, right? Or, you know, or exasperated by the, the substance abuse. So it's super, uh, I love that you're willing to share your story and, and it might be it might be valuable to talk about you know your diagnosis and that journey um, just because it's for me anyway the story is probably the most powerful force for encouraging people to get into treatment um, and I'm sure you tell your story a lot but I think there's power in that so maybe talk about if you can your, your bipolar and how that impacted your recovery Absolutely. So, you know, bipolar is one of the most misdiagnosed, you know, uh, it, it just is. And, um, you know, towards the end of my using, I was reaching out for help. So I kind of got off the hard stuff and thought I was doing okay. And he turned the bottle a little bit. And uh, I still had a lot of things that I was um, pushing down very deep. So I was, my brother was living with me. You know, I'm still working. I kind of get my stuff together a little bit. Um, and I fly to New York for work. Um, I'm out there for three or four days. And the last day I start feeling odd. I start feeling almost like I had taken some Adderall or like speed or whatever. My heart was beating fast. It's mania. I didn't know that. And I started having these kind of grand ideas and I'm in this like final meeting before our flight home. And I'm just like firing off these questions. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I'm so involved. And I just, I was feeling on top of the world kind of, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Cause I'm not really using it. <laughs> so I, um, I remember on the flight home, I was like frantically journaling, still have my journals about life and about oneness and truth and just, enlightenment and wanting to be honest with the world and blah 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 so I fly back in I get back to my apartment and from that moment on it got worse um 
I got into a place where I turned my phone off. I wasn't going to go to work. Um, I was in a different form of reality. It's kind of hard to explain, but I just felt um, nothing made sense anymore. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. I was just very disoriented. And my my brother, who, you know, being schizophrenic and having his own issues, is kind of like, what's happening right now? And he's like, I think the government, like, took over my sister. And his parents are going wild. I'm going wild. My friends come over, dear friends of mine that I've known for a while. And I thought we were there for two hours, but we were really there for, I mean, maybe up to 10 hours. And they said my face looked different, the way I was holding my face and talking. They said that I kept telling them to ask me questions so I could tell them the truth. And uh, and then I started journaling again frantically, kind of writing almost scripture-esque stuff, which is kind of like this is like sort of prophecy complex with, within like bipolar that I think I was experiencing. Um, it's almost like something about like the subconscious kind of grasping onto, um, it kind of grasps onto like, spirituality sometimes because it's kind of like what's trying to ground you and I think that that's what was happening and I started to write down on a piece of paper what's what do I do what what's happening right now I'm like literally writing this down and then I start drawing an arrow and it was almost like something was controlling my hand like I wasn't writing it and I think I was writing with my right hand which in fact I'm left-handed and so I'm drawing this arrow over and over again and it's pointing to me and underneath the arrow, I put the answers inside you. And at that moment, I said, I think I need to, I think I need to go somewhere. They're like, yes, we've been telling you this whole time. I was so out of it. Like, that, I thought this was just something I came up with. Um, but it's kind of interesting that it does need to come from me. You know, I, I, I was in the midst of complete chaos, but I needed to make that decision for me. And so... It didn't really end there. The cops had to come to come to the house and have a chat with me. And they took me into psych um, at Ohio State. And um, I had delusions in the emergency room. Um, I had thought that, um, so OSU was under construction over a period of time. There's really loud noises. It was almost like they were renovating some of the rooms. And I'd look at my friend and I'd say, hear those noises? I'm, I'm doing that. And she'd be like, no, no, Megan, no, no, you're not. And they're like, whisk my friends are whispering to each other, like, she's on something, she's on something. This is insane. Well, the toxicology thing came back or, you know, my urinalysis, nothing. And so they're like, something is up. And I had delusions um, in the ER room that, you know, those shock paddles um, to revive somebody. I had feeling, I really felt them. I felt like I was getting shocked. Mm. And um, my mom came to see me. She drove three hours down in the middle of the night and stayed with me all night long in the ER where I got transferred to the psych floor. And all I remember is there was something different about her eyes and everyone's eyes that I came in contact with during this, this psychosis or this crisis. And, and um, I, I just felt like, something higher was coming through and it was the craziest feeling. And then once I felt like I was, my body was getting shocked, it was almost like a voice told me, you know, this part of you is going to rate a la- rest. 
so that you can kind of continue on with your life and be the you that you need to be. It was so crazy. I just was like, I can't believe this is happening. So, um, you know, long story short, I, I finished my stint inpatient at psych. I continued doing some outpatient. Now I'd been connected with 12 step prior to this. So started going back to meetings and feeling real connected. But when I read books about enlightenment, like one of my favorite authors is Adia Shanti, Falling into Grace is the book. That was a true depiction of enlightenment for me, like spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, of what it means to completely surrender and find a new way of life. Wow. How curious. And is that, that's the, so that's the first manic episode that you had ever experienced. I had experienced some mild mania prior and I kind of covered it up with substances and I covered it up with, you know, I'm just going through something. This is weird. Do you think, um, this is always the question is, is, do you think that your substance use played into it? Meaning made it maybe made it more exhibit more or do you think it's just it just is what you deal with i had thought about that a lot and that's something that i asked professionals about as well like was there some type of correlation between the fact that i had stopped using opiates and i was just drinking and there was like some transition there where my body like was out of whack or whatever i do think that um I would have been diagnosed bipolar, bipolar one, no matter what, um, despite the using, but I think it amplified it. And it also covered up a lot of symptoms that would have been exhibited prior to that. Now, most people are diagnosed like in their twenties and mid twenties. Uh, my grandmother had bipolar one. My grandfather was schizophrenic. Um, and I know they're still doing a lot of research on why it happens, how it happens, why it, you know, all the things. So I do think it contributed to it, though. Hmm. And, and it would be rightfully so, you'd imagine, that on some level it's going to contribute to it, but, you know, how much? And I don't think you can answer that question, but it is definitely one that we are always asking, right? Like, what's the role? How do they, how do they interplay? Um, and so today you, you deal with bipolar. What, what does that look like? Because that's not always easy to manage. Um, what do you do today to try and keep yourself you know, as balanced as possible. There's a lot that I do for the bipolar. So it's very interesting because, um, you know, I go to 12 step for, um, you know, the addiction piece. I need to fill my cup up and, um, I'm very out about being in recovery. Um, you know, from active addiction as many people are don't see as many people saying I'm in recovery you know, and I'm also bipolar one. I, I'm, I haven't had a psychosis for, you know, six, six and a half years. Uh, so I need to remember that I, I have to continue on, you know, coping with things and understanding the addiction piece, but it's just as important to understand the bipolar piece because what triggers me and what I've identified over the years is any big major change. I moved apartments and I've moved a lot, but for some reason this move was hard on me. <laughs> and one evening 
after I moved my stuff in, and I had to work the next day, and I was up till 4.30 in the morning hanging up stuff on the wall. And I wasn't, like, doing the whole measuring it out, making sure it was straight. I was just, like, taking it, nailing it to the wall. I mean, granted, when I woke up in the morning, it was actually pretty legit. But it was it was mania, and that lasted for, like, a couple more days. Now, I don't quite identify as much with, with the depression. That usually hangs out for a while, and it takes me a while to realize, you know what? I think I'm depressed. <laughs> um, but I, I do see um, a therapist every two weeks. Uh, I talk about it. And what's interesting is that when I bring up stuff going on in my life, sometimes it has to do with um, me being an addict or me being bipolar or having bipolar. And sometimes I, I think this is the fact that you're human. I really don't, mm-hmm. you know, so he, he kind of helps me get through those, um, those situations. And, um, I, I do a mix of things for, um, you know, my spiritual, my mind and body. So I do acupuncture, which has been huge for me. Um, I get to a meditative state where it really, really benefits me. Um, I, you know, I, I do guided meditations. Um, sleep is huge for, for bipolar that's something I sh- that's hardest for me to be honest that that's pretty tough but um there are you know essential oils and stuff that I kind of before thought eh, like is that really gonna help like is that really gonna and um it's interesting because my being bipolar having the the sleep issues can actually be a trigger for my addiction so there's all these things that like are overlaying that, you know, I'm not really sure, um, you know, what to do at that point, other than I'm going to talk to somebody about it. I'm going to go to a meeting. You know, I got the support that I need. You know, I got to check in with myself. And then I also have to look at what I'm really grateful for. Um, and, and luckily I have amazing support system here, like phenomenal in Columbus, Ohio. Hmm. That's, and that's so valuable. I mean, we can't, we talk about that a lot on, on the podcast about <clears throat> the idea that connection is the opposite of addiction and that, you know, our, our, our network of people, um, it makes all the difference in the world. And that without that, I don't know that we could, that anybody could be successful really at, at you know, maintaining sobriety or, or managing bipolar or mental illness of any kind, because I think connection is huge. So I love to hear you say that. Um, you also talked about a little bit about your, your own sexuality and struggling with that and, and what that looked like before you came out. That seems like a whole nother layer of complexity. Do you, do you want to share any of the thoughts and experience around that? Absolutely. So growing up, I mean, I was a complete tomboy. And um, it wasn't until the age, and I think a lot of women and a lot of people just experience this, but around the age of kind of like 9, 10, 11-ish, I start looking at other people and comparing it to me. I feel really different. Like, you look different. I'm kind of chubby. Like, what's happening here? But I remember going to a Halloween party, um, and I was like a preteen, and I, w- I wanted to look scary and crazy. I kind of looked like um, 
Adam Sandler in the 80s with like a mullet meets a vampire. That's kind of like what I looked like. And I was so excited about it. And I show up at this party and all my friends were genies and, you know, princesses and they looked all cute. And that was like the first moment where I was like, you know, something, something up here. Um, I feel like something's a little off. And, and that might just be being a young woman versus like having questioning about my sexuality. But it's kind of the first time I, I kind of looked around and, you know, thought, well, well, maybe I maybe I need to be more like them. You know, maybe I could wear more stuff like that. Maybe I could do my hair like this. Maybe I could flirt with those boys. And it felt like every um, uh, relationship I was in from there on out, like high school and college, I didn't really care. Like I, I loved the person, and I and I had I felt for the person, but there was there was something missing. And I thought, well, maybe it's me. Like maybe maybe I'm just kind of like broken, and uh, I'll just have to figure this out. Uh, and in in um, early recovery, I had dated a couple times, and I would always go for like the friend, like. I would go for the person I thought I had a connection with, but in reality, it really wasn't like a intimate um, love connection. It was more of a, a friend. I'm comfortable with you. Maybe this is what it's supposed to feel like. And it was the closest thing I could come to. And, um, you know, I had been blessed with a friend um, in 12 step. Um, she's still my best friend. Uh, and, you know, she told me about her, her coming out and, you know, she had been gay for many years, very confident. In fact, she worked in HIV prevention and, um, we would talk and I, I kind of opened up to her, like something's going on here. And that's, that's kind of the cool thing about recovery is like, once we're able to open up and, and, and be honest with ourselves and then in turn, be honest with other people, we get clarity. And I felt like that was happening. Like I was finally able to not worry about what anyone else thought it wasn't about anything but what was going to make me happy and how I felt and then those experienced follows where I really got to experience what intimacy was and how it felt um and then came of course telling my parents you know I was in my 20s and um it was a beautiful experience to be able to share that with them and I had to go into it like I had to go into like how kind of the steps talk to talk about to us about like amends and like addressing, you know, with honesty and stuff like that. And I just took those spiritual principles and I applied them, you know, to what was going on with me and coming out and, you know, sharing that I had a girlfriend and, um, the response and the love that I got from the people close to me. Um, I mean, it just filled my heart and, and I have faced some questions and adversity and, um, you know, some challenges with, with that, especially for the people who knew me for that long, picturing me a certain way with a certain somebody. Um, so it, it was difficult, but it also has opened up my eyes to, you know, working in behavioral health of how we use confirming language and care for those individuals who may be questioning or who may be LGBTQ. So it kind of was a gift to be able to um, have that perception and, and use it, you know, to kind of help in our community. Because Columbus is in the top 15 cities of LGBTQ populations. <clears throat> well, we've come a long, a long way in our culture of 
learning, you know, how to think about and be more open and accepting of thing, you know, people and situations that are different than what we're used to. But boy, back in the day, and, and I know you're a lot younger than I am, but that, that just wouldn't have happened, you know, back when I was a kid, that was not something that was readily accepted and it was confusing and people had a hard time. So I love to hear that that was a very, um, you know, supportive experience for you. That's, uh, that's powerful. And, and then you talked about, you know, peers helping peers. And so you've, you've got a lot of relatability. Um, <clears throat> you talked at one point about early on in your, in your career working with military and watching a, you know, a colonel or a, I don't remember what you said, come in and, and really have a connection. But at that stage of the game, you weren't dealing with addiction. Is that true? So at that point, working um, at that university, I was in my first year or two of recovery. Mm-hmm. But you felt like that this peer in the military had much more connection with these with these military people than even you could have being in recovery. There was something more there. It sounds like what you heard, yeah. what I heard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember, um, working there and a student was in class, um, who had PTSD and the professor asked him to stand up and read. He said, no, thank you. I don't want to read. And they asked him again. He said, no, I don't want to read. I, you know, it's, it's triggering for me. And the professor kept pressing it. And I remember that student coming back and he just was so, he felt really defeated and embarrassed. And I, and I just keep thinking like, well, where's the training? Where's the, you know, any institution can say I'm LGBTQ friendly, I'm military friendly, I'm whatever. But, but are we backing it up? Like, are we really following with that? And are we giving them the resources? And one of those resources providing that major general to be that liaison um, and to be a resource, you know, for those students to truly have what they needed to succeed because they have different challenges. We don't think about that of what they face when they're with civilians and even like the topics that get brought up, you know, they're in a history class, you know, they're, they're talking politics and they're talking this and that. And, um, it's, it's through a whole different lens and they need an outlet to be able to go to somebody that understands them. Mm. You make a you make a really good point um, about you know really I don't know if if calling these disabilities are the best way to categorize it but these are challenges that people experience because of of human nature because of what they've been exposed to and and this is normal you know responses to trauma <clears throat> and but we don't understand if we've never put you know put in that situation we have no frame of reference. We really don't understand, and so it's uh, it's been a long haul to try and educate people. And and I've you know I've been in the educational arena and and seen how they address disabilities, and we'll, I'm, that's in quotation, right? People's challenges, and I think there's a real effort being made in some areas more than others, um, but it's so difficult to help people you know really understand what that requires. And I'm sure this professor, had he really understood what PTSD was and that's what he was struggling with, maybe he would have been more compassionate. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think about it all the time. You, you hear people say really unkind things and, and then you've got to help someone else understand, yeah, it wasn't right for them to say that, but that's all they knew how to say. They didn't get it. Uh-huh. And if they got it, they wouldn't say that. And looking at people as though they're trying to do the very best they can. And then you go back to that education piece, which is big for you. I mean, you're out there 
<clears throat> talking in universities, prisons, um, community-based correctional facilities, um, maybe spend a little bit of time, uh, you know, talking about what, what's your, what's the message out there and what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. So it, it's kind of funny you bring up the, the, some of the presentations. Uh, one of the first times I shared my story with um, a woman's prison, I was terrified. I thought it was going to be 25 women. It was like 250 women. Oh, wow. You can't bring your phone in. And normally I use music as a comfort, you know. And they're like, oh, you can't bring that in. I was like, yeah, darn it. So I walk in and um, I'm going to, you know, share my story um, of recovery and, and mental health. And um, it's more, it was more kind of like a 12 step format where someone would introduce me as kind of like a speaker. And um, I go up to the, I mean, they say inmate. I go up to the woman um, to introduce me. She turns around and I know her. She was my roommate in the psych ward who gave me an NA book and who gave me clothes my first night there. And I instantly was like, now, now this is just a telltale sign that I'm exactly where I need to be. And I was like so nervous. Um, I'm, I'm kind of asking the universe, like, give me some type of sign that like I'm in reality here and I can do this. And, and you know, there it was. So I kind of just started, um, you know, volunteering and finding ways that we could create connection for others. And, um, and that was, you know, sharing my story that was supporting others, um, share stories and then also creating panels, um, to discuss certain issues. And my main goal when, you know, establishing a panel and having those come and network and share and, and learn about addiction and mental health is that it needs to be raw. Um, there's a lot of surface stuff we could go over, but who's willing to get really raw? And raw doesn't mean, you know, it, it doesn't mean everything needs to be down and dirty, but it's just what is the truth of the situation happening here? And, you know, for one of those panels, there was, you know, um, a, a fire chief who was sharing about addiction response and the statistics and the real life stories of what they see. And I think it was important for people to hear that. And so, um, being a part of that and having things kind of organically come together and be able to like support that and share it with the community um, has been has been a true gift. Well, and I, and I I guess a little bit near and dear to my heart is is those women. You know, I've, I worked with women in a halfway house coming out of prison early on in my career, and that that was a life changer for me. That changed the way I saw my world. And, um, and really that perspective of, yeah, okay, I know why we've incarcerated these women, but it's not right. This isn't the kind of help that they need. They're victims as much as they're, you know, as much as they've victimized other people. And, and it's like, it just, it tug at my heartstring. And I heard some stories that would just curl your toes like, oh my heck, I am one of those entitled white people they talk about in my textbooks, right? And, and, and just bring a new perspective of, of people and experiences and really where they came from. And no wonder, no wonder they're having the struggles and challenges that they are. So, so when you yep. talk about going in and talking to that group of people, they're incredible. And, and, and the fact that you see people that you know, right? You see people that this world is way smaller than I think that we realize, right? And we come across people all day long that's like, 
I remember I was walking into a place yesterday and this lady's like, yeah, I know you, I know you. And I'm like, I know you too, but I don't know where, somewhere we'll figure it out one day. Right. Um, so I love that you do that and that you, you're always out there educating and helping people understand, um, ways to think differently and ways to get involved and ways to help. Cause I think it's so important. Um, talk a little bit about the programs that you work with and, um, and how, how those are helping people and, and why you find, because I know you talked about passion, so I'll ask two questions. Where you're working and what you're doing, and also why passion is so important to you. What role does that play in the work that you do? Sure, so with, with the volunteer side of things, uh, I have volunteered for you know the 12-step community you know, here in Columbus, and there's um, anonymity to that, so Anytime I'm able to serve and, you know, my name isn't on anything. I mean, th there's humility in that and it, it fills my cup up, but at no point is kind of like, you know, the ego taking over, over. And I, I remember a moment where it was COVID. It was COVID. <laughs> like, <laughs> and in the beginning, you know, all of the meetings were in person and all of the churches and all of the organizations were shutting us down. Can't meet in person. And this is like, people's lifeline, my lifeline. Um, and for the next three or four or five weekends from the morning to night, we took every single meeting, put it on an online platform, provided trainings for people who could run the meeting for those people. For those people who didn't have a phone, we were, we created an 800 number for them to call in or we just, any barrier we knocked it out and then like the fourth fifth weekend me and these other volunteers we looked at each other it was only like three of us and we're like oh my god like what just happened <laughs> it, it's like we just, because there's thousands of people in the area and the gift that came from that is that people who are in the outskirts of the city who don't have the means or transportation to come to live meetings or in-person meetings were able to log on and they weren't log on, logging on to like the national meetings, which could be beneficial, right? They were logging into to more local meetings where someone might be 30 minutes, 45 minutes away. They were, they were logging into their Ohio community and in turn building up contacts and support, maybe getting a local sponsor. And so it's like the, the um, darkness turns the light type of situation. So that's kind of like a lot of volunteer stuff we do and um, we've done talent shows addicts got talent we've done um you know the first the first year um you know 12-step recovery was in the pride parade and there's tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of attendees at that parade the first time so we got to go through and we were holding signs and of course you know it was more um about a credible program of recovery and less about promotion, you know, in line with the traditions of 12 step. But you see people out in the crowd, you know, holding up their fingers one year, I got two years, I got three years. I'm, you know, I'm one of you. And it was just a, it, it was just something that gave you goosebumps all over your body. Mm. So, um, in my professional, um, side of things, you know, I'm the director of outreach at recovery village in Columbus, Ohio. So it's one of nine facilities that are part of advanced recovery systems. And so it's primary substance abuse, secondary mental health. So we treat people who come in for medical detox, residential, um, partial and outpatient services. And you know, what's interesting is when we pull the feedback from clients, 
um, whether it's like a review or a feedback we get. And this goes for probably any facility that you know, talk about some of the amenities. It could talk about, oh, it was great, you know, pool or whatever, you know. But mainly the comments say, so-and-so helped change my life. Sarah, my therapist. Nicole, my case manager. Um, so-and-so, the doctor I was seeing. And they, they talk about the team of people there, less about the facility. And we take that very seriously at Recovery Village. So we have different specialties. Um, we have a sister facility that treats um, IFF firefighters. Um, we have a facility that can do underlying eating disorders at Recovery Village. We can treat, you know, physicians. And um, But the key piece of that is having great people and handpick leadership to be able to serve the people that need the help. And a good example is our medical director, Tiffany Bell, Dr. Tiffany Bell is triple boarded, psychiatry, addiction, medicine, DO, and she's on site, she's there every day. She'll call me with different ideas of how to help people. <laughs> what I learned about this neuro testing or whatever. And so that's what makes us, you know, and, and it sounds kind of silly, but a village of, we're your lifelong village. You come here, you don't come here just for treatment. You come here to build a community, have support, get aftercare. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't stop here. You're with us for 30, 45 days. You know, that's nothing compared to the rest of your life. What are we going to do that you up for the rest of your life? So. Mm, which is so important. I was just telling somebody that, you know, has a fairly new facility. And I said, look, you know, it's one thing to give treatment and it's, and it's a totally another thing to create a community that this is a lifelong thing and you're going to be there every step of the way, even after they're done with treatment, right? That's an important piece that you have to create as you're building this. And, and obviously you guys have done that. It's so, I can't think of too many places where a doctor is so dedicated that they are present and willing to talk with people whenever they need it and not just, you know, you have an appointment, you get five minutes, that's it, right? That's, you know, the, the need for psychiatrists and doctors is so huge that there's this huge burden on them. So I love hearing that, that you know, that there's a relationship there with, with the doctor as well as the providers and, and other staff members. That's huge. And, and we've talked about the importance of, of relationships. So I love to hear you talk about that. It's huge. Um, Megan, I, I just want to thank you for being on today. It's been fun talking to you and hearing your story and, you know, kind of, you know, feeling that sadness as you talked about your brother and that experience and, and your recovery and just the whole journey has been pretty powerful. Um, I am absolutely certain that there's going to be people want to reach out and connect with you. What's the best way for them to, um, to do that? Well, if my email wasn't a mile long, I provide that. I think I spelled it wrong even when I gave it to you. Let's just go with my number and a call or a text. Um, so again, it's 614-369-0880. That'd be great. That's awesome. And, and you know, not everybody's willing to give out their phone number and their cell number at best. But you, you know somebody's serious about helping people when they are willing to do that and understands just how important it is that somebody can connect with you when they need it, even when it's very inconvenient for the rest of us. So I love that. Megan, thanks so much. I, I just um, made my day to listen to your story and, and hear that journey and, and just see where you're at today with, with the challenges that you have and, and the healing that's, that's gone, gone on. So thank you. Thank you for having me.